All right. So we're in the book of Ephesians right now, and so we kind of just wrapped up a, a, a little mini-series within Ephesians. It was this mini-series of, of putting on and putting off, like uh, where we were talking about what does it look like for us to become a maturing church, and what we saw was uh, a picture of a maturing church is a church that puts on the character of Jesus, and then a maturing church is also a church that puts off any, anything that's not of Jesus. Jesus, anything that is sin, anything, any way that is not Jesus's way. And so we went um, week by week looking at all these different characteristics of Jesus, and we talked about how we could put those things on as a church in hopes that we would become a maturing church. And today we're actually going to kind of still stay in this idea of what does it look like to be a mature church? But rather than it being put, uh, about putting on or putting off at this point, it's really what we're going to see is that it's, it's rooted in where we find our identity. That, that for us today, as we look at what it means to be a maturing church, we're going to see that it's rooted in where we find our identity. Um, how, many, how many of you guys have seen um, the movie Blood Diamond? Probably not a lot. Oh, Wow. A lot. All right, surprise. Um, so Blood Diamond, it's, it's a really good movie, um, I, and I'm going to reference it. I saw a Babylon Bee article that said, Pastor finds um, perfect Bible passage to illustrate movie. And sorry, I think we do that sometimes. <laughs> no, uh, but uh, this movie Blood Diamond, kind of concept of the movie is there's this man from Sierra Leone, and he finds this massive diamond at the beginning of the movie, and he hides it. And it's in the midst of this turmoil happening in his country where different revolutionaries are coming in and kind of oppressing the people and these different things. And so he finds himself in jail, and wouldn't you know it, right in jail with Solomon is Leo DiCaprio. And so him and Leo, they start talking... And Leo's playing a, a South African man. Uh, they start talking, and they find out about this diamond. So Leo works some, some ways to get them both out of jail so Solomon can show Leo where this diamond is. So they go on this grand journey to find this diamond. Now, in the midst of this journey, Solomon's son, stay with me, Dia, he gets kidnapped from Solomon's family and their tribe. He gets kidnapped by some revolutionaries who are taking child so children and turning them into child soldiers. And so they're brainwashing these kids. They're giving them drugs. They're making them do things they shouldn't do. They're giving them guns. They're forcing them to kill people as children. Dia's probably only like 9 or 10 uh, in the movie. And so Solomon finds out about this, and now his quest is not to find this diamond with this man, but his quest is now to save his son. And so the rest of this movie, he, he, uh, Leo is kind of just dragging him towards the diamond and, and, and kind of saying, okay, we'll save your son in the midst of this. But Solomon is just sure that he is going to save his son. He is determined to find his son and, and rescue his son from uh, from, the, from these revolutionaries that, that, that turn these kids into child soldiers. So you get to the climax of the movie. It's right at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. They find, they're digging around where Solomon originally buried the diamond. And now, kind of a battle had taken place with the revolutionaries and the child soldiers. And Solomon's son comes out of the jungle with a gun. And he rolls up on his dad and on Leo. He points the gun at Leo first. Makes sense. But then he points the gun at his dad. And his dad is just like, Dia, Dia, what, what, what are you doing? Now, if my son rolled up on me and he pointed a gun at me, I'd probably say, you better hope you take me down. 
because I will come with you, come at you with a fury that you won't imagine, right? Like I would, and I just react differently. I'm just, I, I have anger issues. And so uh, Solomon, though, being a good, loving, and gracious father, he realizes that his son has been brainwashed. He realizes that his son has been really just tormented and, and, and forced into this life uh, too soon, and, if, and at all, he shouldn't have been. And so instead of yell at his son or threaten his son or try to take the gun out of his son's hand, what he begins to do is he begins to speak the truth of Dia's identity into him. He begins to tell Dia who he really is. And it's, it's a powerful scene. I'm going to say some of the lines, what he starts to say to uh, Dia. He says, you are Dia Vandi of the Praumendi tribe, my good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains. The cows wait for you, and the wild dog only you can tame is there. I'm your father who loves you, and you are going to come home with me. And as you're watching the movie and you see this part of the movie, you're just like, go back home to the cows, dear. Come on. Put the gun down. And of course, he puts the gun down, and, and they're reconciled, and, they're, and they go back home together. Now, what I love about that scene is I think Solomon gives us a picture of what God does with us. God is on this rescue mission to save us, and how he saves us out of it is he begins to speak to us and tell us what our true identity is when it's found in him. He begins to speak to us, and he begins to tell us who, we, who he really created us to be. And I think in the text today, when we look, we're going to see all these different commands not to sin, and then also to kind of live righteously. And in the midst of it, we could get bogged down and feel lost if we don't realize that, that what Paul is trying to do is speak the truth of our identity in Christ to us. He's trying to tell us who we really are. I love this quote. I've read it before, but I'm going to read it again uh, because you probably weren't here when I read it. And the quote is by Kevin DeYoung. And uh, it's from a book, The Hole in Our Holiness, and he, he's summarizing what he thinks New Testament, New Testament ethics is marked by. And he says this, if I had to summarize New Testament ethics in one sentence, here's how I'd put it. Be who you are. That may sound strange, almost heretical, given our culture's emphasis on being true to yourself. But like so many of the worst errors in the world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, you were born that way, or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you, they are stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace, not by nature. You may want to read that last sentence again because the difference between living in sin and living in righteousness depends on getting the last sentence right. God doesn't say, relax, you were born this way, but he does say, good news, you were reborn another way. New Testament ethics, and what we're going to be talking about today is God speaking to us our true identity in him. So today, as we talk about sin and these different things, it's going to sound, uh, it could sound like Anthony's just the craziest guy ever, or we could realize that God is calling us into our true identity. There's two verses 
in this passage that we're going to go through, two verses in particular that I think helps. It's kind of like Paul's thesis for where we're going today. And so I want to read these two verses. Verse 8 says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Paul, he knows that the church struggles with sin. He reminds them that they used to be just totally devoid of God. And often in the Bible, that's, that's referred to as being in the darkness. And he says, but God has now saved you. He has brought you in. And often throughout the New Testament, God is referred to as being in the light. And so now we are God's children, so much so that our identity in God is, is we're known as children of light among other things. So Paul is speaking this identity into the church. He wants the church to remember that they're not children of darkness anymore. They're not children of sin anymore. They are children of God, which means they are children of light. They can stand out in the open, and they don't have to hide anything about themselves because they are in the light of God. And then Paul wraps up this little portion that we're in today. We're going to be in 3 through 14. In verse 14, and he says something really interesting. He quotes something that's very interesting on the back half of 14. He says this, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, as you see, you're like, you kind of get there, and you're like, well, Paul, what are, you, what are you quoting? Now, some theologians think he's, he's kind of quoting Isaiah or a few verses I, from my, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, or he's um, kind of changed the wording to some of the things that, that Isaiah said. But a lot of theologians actually think that this, what he's quoting right there, this awake, sleeper, he's actually quoting a song. He's actually quoting a hymn that the early church sang together, that, that, that Paul uh, is quoting this song, and that song is such a strange song to sing. I, when, I, when I read that, I was like, so the early church, they just sang to each other to wake up. They sang to each other to rise from the dead, and it's a strange song if your New Testament ethics is built on doing things. But if your New Testament ethics is built in Christ and the identity that you can find in Christ, it's not so strange. Because Paul knows the tension that Christians walk through in this world, and he knows that often as Christians we have a, a tendency to drift towards the darkness, to drift back into sin. And so the early church, they thought it was important to say, awake, O sleeper. Wake up, because they knew that sometimes as Christians, we fall into this spiritual sleep where we allow the darkness to come back in, where we allow sin to come back into our life. And then the next line of the song says, arise, arise, kind of this idea, arise from the dead, walk in the newness of life that you have in Christ, walk as Christ did, Christ walked and rised from the dead, so do you now, and you can share in that, and so today, we're going to go through this passage, and I think this passage really just echoes that song over and over again, pushing us into our identity as children of light. 
It's going to say one or two things. Today, there's only really two things we're going to say over and over again. It's going to be wake up from sin. Wake up from your spiritual sleep that has allowed you to let sin into your life. Or to arise, walk as Christ did. Because you share in the resurrected life with him. And so that's where we're going today. Either I want us to hear this text. I want us to think through this text and not just hear, this is how I be a good boy or a good girl, but that we would hear this text and we'd say, that, it, those sinful things, they're not part of my identity anymore. These, way, these things that look like Jesus, I need to arise and walk as Jesus did. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this message could seem confusing or judgy or, or, or whatever, but I, I want you to kind of just sit and ask yourself the question, is there something I need to wake up from? Have I allowed some different things into my life uh, that I know are not good for me? And I, I would like to contend to say that I think that's sin. I think you're finding your identity in sin or you're choosing to worship things that are not God. And I think that God has created you to worship himself. And so just sit with that. Sit and think, man, is there, are there things that I need to wake up from? But church... Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, so we need to perk up. We need to listen. We need to look at these things intentionally and think, does the church even, in a sense, need to sing to me about this sin? Do I need to wake up from these things, or do I need to arise and walk as Christ walks? All right? So let's go back into it. We're going to start in verse 3 of chapter 5. And we're going to go about halfway through verse 4. It says this. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. We'll stop there. So Paul right after last week, talking and, and telling us about putting on love, he says, but don't do these things. And so I wanted to do a whole sermon about how doing these things is not walking in love, but I didn't go that direction, so sorry. That will be next time when I preach the exact same passage. I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, but Paul, Paul, he is, again, he's trying to remind us of our identity. He's trying to wake us up to the areas where we may have let sin come into our life. So he mentions sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. He says that's not proper among the saints. That's not what we do. That's not who we are. And he says don't let there be filthiness or crude joking or, or crude talking either. And so today what I, I want to do is I, I do want to pause on a lot of these things that Paul mentions. There's a lot of different commands in here. And... and and it's going to be a little bit of a burden for us, but you guys are smart. I think you'll be fine. But we have to anchor these, these commands in, is, is Paul saying, wake up, remember your identity? Or is he saying, arise, remember your identity in Christ? Okay? And so some of these first things, Paul is trying to wake us up. So let's go through them. First is, he mentions sexual immorality. He says, this is not what the saints do. So uh, there really isn't a lot of confusion about what this word means. It's used in, an, in a few different ways throughout the New Testament, the, the word there for sexual morality in the Greek. And 
basically what it means is any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage. Any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage. That's how it's usually used. That's usually um, how it's used to describe things. Sometimes it's used to describe specific sexual acts um, and, and different things like that. But it is most often used to just say, hey, any sort of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. So right away, this idea right here is so uh, offensive to our culture. It's so offensive to our culture. Some of you might even be offended right now that, that I would say that we as Christians should not have sexual immorality a, a part of us, that it's not part of our identity. Because we look at sexual immorality and we think that God was just like, hey, I know that's really fun. I know there's some awesome things you can do when you go like this or do this, but no, you can't. And we go, this is just an arbitrary rule that some people made that's antiquated. They made it before there were some safety measures around these things. And, and, and we get lost in what our culture says about sex, where our culture says, hey, if it feels good and it's consensual and it's not hurting anyone, go for it. But the Bible has a different ethic around sex. And it's not just because God is this grumpy guy who doesn't want us touching each other. It, there is a theology of sex in the Bible that we have forgotten. And so when Paul calls us out of sexual immorality, if we don't have a good theology of sex, then it's, it is good. It's just going to sound like arbitrary rules that God is making. And so I want to give us a little a theology of sex because I, I think for even myself and for our church, sometimes we forget the theology around sex. And so we find ourselves spiritually asleep in this area and so I want to give us this, this theology of sex in order to help us potentially wake up. So in sex, really, as it's defined in the Bible, is it's a good gift from God given for the context of, of marriage. And so we have to go, well, okay, God, well, 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 why is that? And there, there's really a few reasons. First and foremost, I believe that like everything that we do as Christians is supposed to represent Christ in some way or show who God is. So when God asks us to do something, there is a reason for it. And the reason is usually because this better reflects who God is. That although we are broken people, we are image bearers of God. And so even in our lives with sex, our sex lives should and can image God when done the way that God intends it to be done. And so God is a God who makes covenants with people. A covenant in the Bible, if you don't know what that is, it's really just a promise to be in relationship with someone uh, that, uh, that's unbreakable. It's not like a contract that you can change or something you can change. It is a covenant. A covenant relationship in the Bible is this, this relationship where both parties are loyal to each other and to no other. And so we see God begins to make these covenant relationships throughout the Bible. He makes one with Abraham and the people of Israel. And then he, we see that Jesus ushered in this new sort of covenant based on, on his life, death, and, and, and resurrection. And what's interesting about God's covenants in the Bible is they're always marked by a sign. So Abraham, when he made the, uh, the covenant with God, it was marked by uh, this, this sacrifice, and it was marked by circumcision. Right? I'm glad I was born in this day and age. And then 
the, for the New Testament believers, when they, when they became Christians and they are now in covenant relationship with God, the, the sign and mark of that covenant was baptism. They would go dunk themselves to show that they lived a resurrected life with God now. And so marriage is a picture of our covenant relationship with God. Okay, hear that. So our theology around sex is we should realize that sex is reserved for marriage for a reason because it shows better how God is in relationship with us, how we are in covenant with him. And so when there are these different parameters and rules around sex that we see in the Bible, it freaks us out sometimes, but it shouldn't freak us out. It should actually cause our hearts to be in awe of what God has done and how he's created us. And so when we live this out correctly, it is not oppressive. It is actually a beautiful, freeing thing to see who God is through marriage and sex. And so I, I want to just say a few, a few ways, a few ways that, I, that specifically sex uh, shows who God is, sex in, in the context of marriage. So first, this beautiful, amazing thing happens in, in marriage, and, and it happens through the act of sex, and it's this idea of two people becoming one flesh. You can read it in Genesis, you can read uh, Jesus repeat this phrase. You can read others repeat this phrase throughout the, throughout the Bible. And it's this idea of two people that, have, uh, that are totally different. They just they come together and they become one flesh. And it's this mysterious thing. And, and if, if you're in the room and, and you've had sex, whether it's outside of marriage or within marriage, sorry, I know there's kids in here, but kids, just ask your parents a lot of questions after this. Um, my bad. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it, you, you know that, that this act of sex, there, there's something that happens. And, and scientists will tell you what's scientifically happening. And I would say that it's scientifically happening because God made us that way. He wanted this kind of one flesh thing to happen in between us. And so how is that a picture of God and his covenant? Well, this crazy thing happens. When we put our faith in Jesus to save us, it says that we have a union with Christ. It says that the church is Christ's body. That's crazy to me. The God of the universe, the God that describes himself as holy, which doesn't just mean perfect, it also means set apart. That God is so different and set apart than anything that's been created, that that God is in a union with us. And so, with sex in marriage, when that one fleshness is happening, it's a picture of our relationship with God. It's a picture of our covenant with God. Now, some people are like, well, then why do, why do I have to only have sex with one person? What, what, is that, what is that a picture of? Well, I think it's simply a picture of that we as the church, we as Christians, we are to be united to God and to no one else. And we are supposed to walk that out joyously and in contentment because, frankly, we don't need anything but God. And so in marriage, when you choose to only have sex with who you marry, it can be a beautiful picture of that. It can be a beautiful picture of how we are to be united to God and to nothing else. And then sex also becomes a picture of, uh, to each spouse uh, of who Jesus is. 
right? In sex and, and, and spouses, I'm going to help you out right now. Sex, it should really be considered something where you are serving your spouse. Our culture's made sex this thing where you just take and you take and you take. But the church and God has made sex to be something where we, when we have sex, we are looking to serve our spouse. Not get from our spouse, but to serve our spouse. That's a picture of Jesus because Jesus himself said, hey, I came not to be served, but I came to serve. And so when we kind of get this idea that we can just kind of go outside of marriage or before marriage and have all kinds of sexual partners, we're marring the beautiful picture of Jesus on ourselves. Because if we're going to be honest in our hookup culture, if you're trying to have sex with multiple partners, you are just taking. You are just being selfish. And maybe you're in here like, Anthony, you don't know what kind of lover I am. I, I, I do. <laughs> selfish. <laughs> so a good theology of sex sees that it is always a picture of our covenant relationship with God. Somewhere in the last 30, 40 years, we've kind of lost that. We've kind of just turned sex into like, hey, don't do that. Rather than that to use sex as an act of worship, and a display of who God is. And so this is, obviously I'm going to spend the most time on this part of the sermon because, listen, I'm meeting with a lot of you and you guys are just doing things you shouldn't be doing. Like, that's just the case. We need to wake up from this church. We need to wake up from the spiritual sleep that, that society or really just our own heart's desires have caused us to fall under and allow sexual immorality into our life. And so you're, you're, I want to give you some things that I think is sexual immorality today. First, it starts with Jesus' words and framework about sex. As he says, if you lust upon someone, that's, that's sin. He goes, that's, that's a sin like adultery. So he's saying to single people out in the crowd, he's saying to everybody out in the crowd, that if you just lust towards someone, it's just as bad as a husband cheating on his wife. That's kind of crazy. He's saying these sins are in the same realm. So I think a lot of times, we, we as the church, we keep ourselves from doing things, but we just kind of let lust rule our brains. We let lust rule our eyes. And when that happens, what, the sad thing about that is we begin to turn every person around us that we're attracted to, we turn them into an object. They're not a person with the image of God on them. They're just a, a piece of meat. They're just something that you're thinking about how you could use them to make you happy. I think in our, in our church and in this society, another way sexual immorality plays itself out is through, the, is through porn. Porn use is, is, is honestly insane. It is insane how many people are using porn. It's insane how quiet society has been until just recently about the damaging effects of porn. Not even just to mention that porn, when you watch porn, you're helping an industry that literally takes women and kidnaps them and rapes them. 
I want you to sit in that. I want you to wake up from that. We have fallen asleep when it comes to porn. Now, I don't want you to feel judgment. I want you to wake up and realize your identity as, is as a saint. You are a child of light. Jesus is your identity. Jesus is your righteousness. So even if you failed for years, he can bring you out of it. I really believe that. He can bring you out of that. It is a problem. So listen, if you, if you look at porn casually, I don't even know what that means because you got to type in some weird stuff and that's not very casual. Or if you're addicted to porn, you need help. I'd love to sit with you and talk with you. And I promise I won't yell like this. I'll be a little more gentle. But part of my tone right now is because I want us to wake up. And then, friends, we just... Our culture, maybe porn's not your thing. We just have this hookup culture. We have this culture that is just looking to do sexual things with each other. Maybe you're like, Anthony, don't worry. I, I haven't gone all the way with someone. Listen, I think all kinds of sexual activity is reserved for marriage. So if you need to know what is sexual activity, let's sit down later, and I'll, I'll start telling you. If you're a woman, uh, I'll, I'll make you meet with Andy. But, <laughs> but this is... It, it, it happens pretty quick because Jesus, remember, he framed it with lust. We need to wake up from this, church. This is not who we are. We are children of light. You know why we don't need all that stuff? The way the, that the world wants it and needs it is because we have God. We have the source of all light. We have the source of everything. He has given himself to us. That's crazy. Church, we need to wake up from this. All right, second thing. Uh, <laughs> Paul talks about impurity, and we're going to kind of run through these quickly for time's sake. But Paul talks about impurity, and a lot of times this impurity word, it, it's linked to um, sexual immorality. But as I was doing study and looking at the Greek, I just realized that it, it really means all kinds of impurity. And in that day, there was like different kinds of things that, that can defile you or make you impure. And so we can't be exactly sure what Paul was referencing here. But this is what we can know from the word is he just really meant a defilement of your person from sin. Where you allow yourself to sin and you're defiled because of it. In fact, this word is used uh, to describe perjury at one point. And so I think that this, this idea of impurity, I think we could take it away from the link to sexual immorality, and we could say that sometimes we let sin creep in, and we can know that we're, that we're being defiled in a sense, that we're becoming impure. And this is what it means to be impure, is you are not living out the spotless righteousness that Jesus has given you. You're living out sin. And so... Uh, for me, this is what it looks like. A few weeks ago, Johnny came to me, and he said, hey, Anthony, uh, one of the speakers for our practice band, it's not really working anymore. I, I was wondering if we could get it re replaced or repaired. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Actually, that company, they, they have a two-year warranty with us. And then he goes, oh, by the way, and I was like, dude, this is messed up. And he goes, oh, by the way, uh, I think we dropped it, and so that might be why it's not working. And I was like, oh, Start with that, Johnny. Oh, uh, no. Uh, I'm just kidding. And, uh, and so then I end up calling this company, and 
I say, hey, we need the speaker replaced. And, and the guy's kind of just talking to me right away. And I haven't had to say, like, oh, we dropped it, by the way, yet. And, and, and I just felt the impurity, the corruption begin to creep in. And I was like, man, I could save us some money. These great tithers here at the church, like, I don't want to take their money from them, right? And, like, I, 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 and, and I just felt the, the impurity to lie and not share the whole truth come in. Now, fortunately, the Holy Spirit was like, stop being a liar. And so as soon as there was a pause in the conversation, I was like, also, we, we th- we're pretty sure we dropped the speaker. And if that voids the warranty, I totally understand, right? And then we got a new speaker set anyways. So the Lord provides. Um, but that just, that's what it feels like. A defilement of the person. I can't give you like every specific thing that you go through in your life and what that might mean, but I think we know. God has put right and wrong on our heart. We know when we're letting impurity creep in. All right? All right, let's go on to the next one. Um, he says to wake up from covetousness. This, this idea of coveting is, is throughout the Bible. It's like wanting something that's not yours, wanting, that some, wanting something that is somebody else's. Um, the word here in the Greek, it could also mean uh, like greediness. And so I'm going to kind of speak to both those things here. I think when we were kids, it's easy to know what coveting is or if you have kids. But I remember I was, if I was a kid and my sister picked up a toy that was mine that I hadn't touched in six years, I'd be like, hey, actually, that's mine. I want that. Thank you. And she'd be like, you're not even playing with that. I'm like, I love this toy. Like, like, leave me alone, right? Like, that's coveting. Right now, it's more sinister, right? Because, like, uh, no one's, like, taking toys out of their siblings' hands. I, I, sometimes I still do. But no one's really doing that. I, I think it looks a little bit more like this. Is you get, you're just content with your life. You're content with your home. You're content with just the things that you have. You're content in God, really, is why. And you go over to someone's house for a dinner party, and you walk in, and you're like, I didn't even know they made ceilings this high. <laughs> and you just find yourself thinking, like, what kind of ladder do they use to do this? And you're just like, this is a nice, big house. And you begin to think, I want a house that I could rollerblade in. Like, you just, you, you just, you want this thing. And before, 10 minutes ago, you were completely content. You had all you need, but you walk into this house, and you just can't stop thinking about rollerblading in it. And how you want a house like that. And where it becomes sin, it's not wrong to want nice things or nicer things. Where it becomes sin is where it is your, the driving force of what you do. So then you leave the dinner party and you can't stop thinking about getting a bigger, nicer house. You can't just stop. And so you're like, I got to go work some extra hours if I do some things here, if we change some things in the budget. And it, it becomes your functional God getting this bigger house. Again, it's okay to want a bigger house. It's okay to buy a bigger house. But we need to wake up from the spiritual sleep we find ourselves in, sometimes chasing objects to satisfy ourselves. We need to wake up from that. All right? Uh, The the last thing Paul talks about in verse 4 there, he talks about foolish talk and filthiness and crude joking. He says, this is out of place for the saints. So I want you to think through that. I want you to think through, is your, is your tar- talk marked by that? And if it is, wake up. Begin to understand why that might be. I think there could be a variety of reasons for that. Begin to understand what things are you worshiping in the midst of that. 
wake up from that. Instead, Paul, he gives us uh, uh, the antidote really is to arise and to let there be thanksgiving instead. So instead of your words being crude and filthy, that your words would be uh, full of thankfulness to God and what he has done in your life and what he has done for you and for others. And not only that, is that your words would push other people to thankfulness for God, to, to God. That's what we look like as children of light. That's how we arise. All right? Okay, let's keep going. We're going to go through this, I think, quickly. Uh, verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of the, these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, that's a little intense, Paul. <laughs> right? You read this verse, and, and if you're anything like me, you read it, and you're like, well, I'm out. Uh, it was a good run until I read this verse. And I think we can feel that judgment, but what we have to understand is Paul is using strong language again to, for us to understand how deep our union with Christ is, how strong our identity with Christ is. And he's saying, if you as Christians are beginning to live into sin, you are beginning to act as if sin is your identity, and if sin is your identity, you have no place in the kingdom of God. But we are children of light so we do not let those things define us. Wake up, church. If you are letting certain sins define who you are, you are forgetting your identity is in Jesus. And then I think he kind of gives us this rise command to not let anyone deceive us. I think of it, I don't think any of us actively think, hey, try not to be deceived today. But the Bible kind of says like, yeah, try not to be deceived. I think, what it, I think we can actively work to not be deceived by the world. And here's a clear indicator. If you go to the Bible and there's something hard in there, and it's kind of the opposite of what everyone in society is doing, the Bible is probably speaking clearly. Not always. I can't speak for every scenario. But then if you try to find a podcast or a sermon or, or an article that kind of convinces you you can sin in some certain way, and society kind of applauds that, you're probably on the wrong track. You've probably allowed yourself to be deceived. I, I think we don't actively look uh, to not be deceived, but sometimes I feel like, even, and I'm speaking to my own heart, I actively look to be deceived so that these hard yet clear teachings of the Bible, I could say, well, that's not really true. Rise up into that. You are a child of light. Look to not be deceived. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So God says, our identity is not with the sons of disobedience, so don't walk with the, like them. Even though you might have walked like them at one point, you are now a, children of, a child of light. You walk as a child of light. And then he gives us this kind, another kind of like rise command, like rise into who Jesus is and to think through, to discern what is pleasing to God. 
to try to figure out what is pleasing to God. I know for some people, that's a weird command, or some people don't like that command. When I was in college, actually, the, the ministry that I was a part of, they, they actually made, they went out of their way to say that because of grace, because of the unmerited, beautiful favor of the Lord given to us by nothing we do, we should never look to please God. We should only look to trust God. And I was like, man, I love grace. I love talking about trusting the Lord. But I think the Bible says we should trust the Lord and we should try to please the Lord. And it's just like any relationship. Because we're in a covenant, loyal relationship, we can look to please God. I love when my daughter comes up to me with her toy xylophone or something. I was like, Dad, I made up a song for you. Daddy's cool. Daddy's cool. And it's just that for like 30 minutes. I'm like, you're right. I am cool. Um, right? I don't go, hey, don't, don't try to please me. Just trust me. Right? Like, like, that's just silly. The Lord is blessed by us trying to, to please him. It's okay. It's, it's the same in marriage. It's the same in any sort of friendship or relationship. Discern what is pleasing to the Lord, church. Rise up. See how Jesus even did that toward the Father. He tried to discern what was pleasing to the Father and speak it or do it. All right? Verses 11 through 13. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. We'll stop right there. Paul is saying to the church, hey, there's lots of shameful works going on. Don't take part in them. Wake up. If you are, don't take part in them. But then he says, rise into exposing them. Now, I don't think Paul is actually talking about us going out into our world and, and exposing what all the non-Christians in the world, all the ways that they're sinning. I think sometimes we're called toward that, especially when, it, when justice is on the line or oppression is happening. But I think he's actually just talking in the context of the church that we in the church need to expose the darkness among us. We need to look uh, at our brothers and sisters in Christ, and sometimes we need to say, hey, I think you're sinning in this way. Hey, I think you're setting yourself up to do some shameful works. Now, here's the problem with that, is the framework for us should be speak the truth in love. Like, we should always be looking to love them. We should always be looking to be gentle. The Bible says that too. And we should, uh, when we're speaking the truth, it should come from this place where we love our brother or sister in Christ. And in the church, it kind of goes two directions. You're either just super passive, and you know, like, your best friend is doing something they shouldn't. You're like, I don't want to judge them. I don't want to bring this up. I don't want to talk. I don't know enough about that topic to bring it up. So you don't. Or... There's kind of this, and this, this part of the, I think this, both things kill the church, but this like just actively hurts the church, is you, you love it. You love telling people the truth. You love telling people where they're, they're sinning and where they're doing shameful acts, and you, you take joy in it. And it gets to the point where you're just like making things up that aren't even sin. You're like, I saw that you liked that Facebook post, sin. Like, Dude, I pressed a button. And it was by accident. I, like, I didn't even know. Like, you know, it, and we just get, we kind of fall into one of those two categories, unfortunately. There's more of us in this passive category. There's less people in, in that category. But we should all be in the category where we just want to speak the truth in love to expose the darkness appropriately. Rise 
and expose the shameful works that are among us. All right, verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Just again, echoing that song that we read at the beginning, the early church sang, reminding each other of their identity in Christ. And it's because Christ has so, done so much. He's done so much to secure our identity in him. Right? Christ came to earth to wake us up. He came to earth to wake up humankind to their sin, to their need of a savior, to who God really is. He made the invisible God visible. He woke us up to what God's kingdom is really about. He woke us up to different ways that we had perverted God's kingdom and twisted God's kingdom. He woke us up when he went to the cross to really how serious our sin is. How big of a sacrifice is needed for us to be saved? It wouldn't take some lambs or goats or us following some certain commandments. It would take the Son of God stepping in your place, taking on the wrath of God for your sin. He woke us up to how destructive our sin is. And then he came back to life. It's saying, hey, rise, rise with me. I want to share in this resurrected life with you. And so church, we got to remember our identity. Some of us, we really need to wake up. We need to wake up from this, the sin that we've allowed into our life because that is not our identity. Hear your loving father who says, you are my good boy. You are my good daughter. Come home. Church, we need to wake up and rise and understand that our identity is found in Jesus. Amen, church? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, what a, what a backwards religion. Like, it just feels backwards, God, because we get your identity. You give us your identity. You, you grow in union with us. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that's possible. God, thank you for being gracious to us in the midst of it. Thank you that when you call us out of sin, you're calling us into our true identity as your children. God, I pray that for us in here that we've fallen asleep too long, that you would wake us up by the power of your spirit right now. For those of us that have had a hard time just walking in the newness of resurrected life that we have in you, help us to arise, God. God, we need you to be our identity. Help us to see that that's true. God, we love you and we thank you. Amen.